happening now. We want to welcome our listeners from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good evening. My name is Jason Neifer, and I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy and the NCC Tech Savvy Administrator. And I'm joining you live tonight from Missoula, Montana, where the weather has turned springtime. After last uh, week's, uh, had to wear long underwear on Monday to walk to work to 83 degrees last Tuesday, spring has finally sprung. So I'm delighted to join you from a nicely temperatured Missoula, Montana. And joining me as always, Dr. Wesley Fryer. Wes Fryer, how are you doing this evening? I am fantastic. And we may be hit with severe weather in about 45 minutes. This is our, our radar. We've got two tornado warnings to the south of us. And my daughter's like, what? But uh, it's a way south. Uh, dance has been cut short. Normally, my daughter, our, our older daughter, comes home 30 minutes later. So coming to you from Oklahoma City, Director of Technology at the Cassidy School. Delighted, as always, to have a chance to rub minds with Jason and hear his wisdom and and ooh, there's the thunder. Uh, and just you know, for me, this is so fun. It's 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 almost it is like being in a course where you have to do readings every week because I am finding myself uh, trying to stay more abreast of things so I can sound, you know, at least maybe a third as intelligent as Jason will sound on every topic. So that's quite kind of you, but I think it's the duality here that makes the podcast work. So. Uh, we have lots of exciting articles this week, and as usual, last week we actually ran short. Um, uh, I'm sorry, we ran long of articles, which is kind of our, our, our MO. So, um, Wes, where would you like to start us off tonight? Okay. Well, there's a few new ones that I'm going to be dropping in, um, but uh, let's see. I guess... Uh, let's do the Apple to launch today at Apple retail session. So this is an article from um, Apple Insider, and this was on April the 25th. And um, I think I might have said this in the show. I know I've said that we have both an Apple store and a Microsoft store here in Oklahoma City. Um, I think we've had one of the smaller Apple stores nationwide. Well, fortunately, we were one of the first to have a whole new layout. Now, I was hoping they'd be like the Microsoft store that has some of the coolest digital signage because all up and down the store is like, you know, continuous screens. But uh, I don't have the statistics with me, but it is an inc it's the largest monitor I've ever seen that's on this one wall. And anyway, this is supposed to start in late May at select Apple retail sessions uh, stores. And uh, what, what it says Apple is trying to do, and again, this is Apple Insider, so this is a rumor site, um, but this, you know, is coming from, coming from credible sources. They're going to do things like Teacher Tuesday to invite educators in and to try wow. to do a lot more informational sessions um, to have people using Apple products come and talk and kind of show what they're doing and how they're using the software and trying to make Apple stores more of a place to hang out. Actually, like Starbucks. Now, obviously, there's not food and drink to consume, so I don't know how that how that all, all that plays out. So maybe you go to Starbucks first, and then you show up at, at the Apple Store. But um, I think that's great. I've definitely recommended to people who, especially some older adults who want help, you know, to to do the Apple one-on-one -on -one training and sign up for that kind of thing. Um, I don't think I'm going to really bring this to fruition, but I, an idea that I'd had years ago was to to have a learning cafe and you could have, you know, a menu of different things that people could come learn how to do with their smartphone or with their computer because, you know, people who are doing podcasts and, and, uh, 
you know, watching YouTube and my daughter's looking at me now. I mean, she's learning stuff all the time about, you know, how to, about drawing, about YouTube, about, you know, stuff that makeup, all kinds of stuff that interests her. So right. what do you think, Jason, if you were able to go to the Apple store to teach her Tuesday or to take advantage of something, you think that's, that's appealing at all? Or uh, what, what are your thoughts? I do think so. And in fact, I, I don't have my closest Apple store to me is, is a three hour drive from Missoula, Montana. So an Apple store is not part of my weekly or, or even yearly, yearly reality. But the bottom line is, is that no company does retail like Apple does. They're, the fact that you can walk into an Apple store anywhere on earth and play with a device, a basically unlimited amount of time. And the, and the reason why I know it's unlimited because I've actually gone into Apple stores before and worked for a half an hour before that when I was traveling and only had a device that, that had limited Wi-Fi access or no access at all. And I'm, I'm talking about being in Canada. Uh, the bottom line is, is that I could go into an Apple store and work for 20, 30 minutes, check my email, deal with, with ongoing issues at work. And when I'm done, you know, delete my profile off of Chrome and call it a day. And that, that's an unprecedented retail experience. That now, wait a minute. You probably, you probably had to be on Safari, though, because you, you weren't able to install Chrome there, were you? Um, one time I was, and other times I wasn't. It depends Whoa. on how locked down their piece is. But wow. okay. I probably was on Safari a couple of times, but... I've been always impressed that they don't, they just don't care. Like if you want to go in there for, for several hours and use the Wi-Fi, they really would prefer that you have a great experience in the store than, than have someone in one of the blue turtlenecks come to you and, and kick you out of the store. And of course, I mean, the lure of, of an Apple device, I think, is that there is a premium retail experience that, that happens there. And I'll give you a great example of this. Um, Two years ago, I was in Seattle, a uh, prolonged stay for a kidney transplant, which we've talked about in the past on, on, on the show. And um, I, for, for something I could only describe as a completely stupid act, I dropped my iPad on a bathroom floor and it cracked the screen. So I was tempted to not go in. I had I bought extended Apple Care on it. It was covered, but I felt stupid, so I wasn't going to go in. But I looked um, on... Uh, the Apple store, one of the Apple stores, many Apple stores in Seattle and found that there was a, a an appointment opening um, one afternoon at the Apple store. And I went in and not only did they not, not make me feel like an idiot for dropping my iPad, I left there um, 30 minutes later with a brand new, not even a refurbished, but a brand new iPad for 50 bucks, which was their exchange policy at that time. And I got a refreshed iPad. Um, oh my gosh. And, you know, and it, there wasn't any judgment about it. The the gentleman was super nice. Uh, he asked me a couple questions. He just wanted to know how it broke because uh, that's a little known fact about Apple is that that sometimes you can actually go in um, and say, uh, you know, even if you, you did something that's not covered by their warranty, if you do it, sometimes they'll take it just because they want to see the device after you did whatever stupid thing that you did. Um, I know for a fact that new iPhones, um, if you happen to dunk yours in water and it shorts out, they will take some of those in exchange just because they want to see what a dunked iPhone looks like in the wild. And that notion of customer service is really unprecedented anywhere else in the computer industry. And the fact they want to extend that by making the Apple Store a cool place to hang out, not that it isn't already a cool place to hang out, but they're extending that ethos. I think that's an incredibly smart marketing uh, concept on their part. And here's a connection to the classroom, as we do here at the EdTech Situation Room. You know, thinking about tech support and how we provide that in schools, we've talked about the idea of a genius bar. You know, we just we have BYOD, but not 
mandated or whatever at, at, at high school. Um, so it really varies, but you know, a lot of kids having devices, but as more students bring devices, um, and as more teachers are relying on that, and if at, at some point that, that changes where there's some kind of a requirement, um, you know, a genius store, uh, sort of approach where students are able to bring their devices or teachers and able to get help, uh, has a lot of, a lot of power. And I was interested that Apple for our newly designed store has changed their rules because you used to always have to have an appointment or you couldn't see an Apple genius. Now there's this massive screen on the wall. In fact, I think I might have a picture I can put in the show notes. Um, and then they've got all of these little stools. Um, Peggy George is in our chat room tonight and she, uh, is saying she's hoping they'll have more than just these wooden stools. Um, they've got actually shorter stools, but anyway, you can just go up and get on the list. Uh, sometimes I've had to wait 30 minutes. Um, sometimes I just waited 10 in order to see somebody, but it's pretty interesting. And this idea of where do I go to learn new stuff and also to get my stuff fixed. Um, obviously they've got a unique mix going there with, with their devices and, and all of the profit that's made, but. Uh, excited to see that. And uh, if anybody who's listening uh, has any kind of genius bar or anything like that at school or, you know, is tackling uh, tech support for 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 students or utilizing students in that way, that, that'd be just kind of an interesting thing to know about, because I think that um, we all have needs for just in time support. And sometimes it's, you know, how do I fix this thing? But a lot of times also it's how do I do this thing and to have those resources to turn to. Absolutely. While we're on that thought about, you know, providing a, a, a world-class experience to support your teachers and learners in, in, in your buildings, you know, I think it's a wonderful model to go with. It's something I've always been a big fan of that, that I always thought would work really well in a school and I haven't seen a school attempted yet. I'm a real big fan of the notion of co-working and co-working is the idea that you can create a um, a series of, of open office spaces that are rentable by the day, week, or month, where you can come in with your laptop, get access to great Wi-Fi, have a nice comfortable table or desk to work at, free coffee and, 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 and soda and, and uh, bottled water or, or uh, uh, big bottled water in, in a, a location. And it's essentially the coffee shop, but in a supported area where you don't have to feel like you need to lock your laptop to a table. And in fact, I've been to co-working spaces and probably, I think now, almost double-digit numbers of communities across the United States. I've always thought the co-working space model could be a really amazing way for a school to open up a space after school from like 2 to 7 p.m., for example. You have a staff member um, available. You have students to provide tech support. And I'd like to see teachers and students both utilize that kind of space where, you know, there's a big urn of coffee. Um, there's beautiful Wi-Fi, there's good, comfortable seating, and there's kids coming in and out, there's tables they can work at. Kind of what I think a lot of librarians are trying to turn the school library into, that uh, those librarians that, that are noting that you, know, you, should, you, you could be mixing books and collaborative working spaces in one location, a co-working space in a school makes a lot of sense. And that's what I think Apple is essentially trying to create here. Now, to not to be, you know, negative Apple guy, but it does, it is interesting to me that Apple's going this direction because it suggests to me that perhaps, you know, traffic is down at Apple stores. And so they're trying to reignite some of the energy and passion behind that. Of course, Wes is, is giving me the, the, the kind of side shake there, but, you know, it's interesting that they are trying to reinvigor the model. 
Well, this is the innovator's dilemma, right? When you're on top of your game, it's a big challenge to continue to innovate and figure out how to not just, you know, stay still. And, you know, anyway, that's what Clayton Christensen, I think, uh, has written about the innovator's dilemma. So I'm glad glad to see them hopefully continue, you know, hopefully they'll continue to innovate and, and be creative. And I love that idea of co-working. <clears throat> During the five years that I was an independent consultant, which sounds extremely sexy and exciting, but it was very uh, challenging, especially with regard to, to healthcare. Just, you know, regular income is a really nice thing. Um, I jumped into the co-working community here in Oklahoma yes. City, loved it, and joined one of our, our co-working groups and, um, you know, was just doing the, the social membership. I didn't have my own room or whatever. Our son, who actually just came home today from Colorado from, from his first year of college, when we visited, uh, we, we ended up finding a co-working space that actually a local church had put together. And, uh, I love the networking, right? Because not only is it a place to go and have Wi-Fi, but it was a place where they had events. They, yes. uh, had little classes, kind of like what we're talking about with the Apple store. Um, some people did some podcasting things. I mean, they had a deal for kids and adults. And that's where I learned how to do LED light painting. So we had the LED light with the, like, you know, nine, uh, I don't know if it was double A battery or, or whatever, but you, you know, use the electrical tape. And then we went outside and we had our, either our app on our phone, which I still have called slow shutter. And that opens up the lens, you know, like bulb or whatever. And then you can paint with this led pen at night and create, you know, cool effects and stuff. And anyway, it was just like a really nice nexus of creative techie nerds that, you know, uh, would, would uh, get together uh, sometimes for common purpose, but it also had a space to rent. I've t- right. I taught some yep. classes down there. Yep. It was very affordable and it's just a cool space, right? It was very googly, you know, it was, you know, color, you know, colors were, the furniture was awesome. Uh, that was where I saw my first Keurig. <laughs> um, it was just cool. So I, I love that idea of schools. I'd love to know that as anybody's school. That some, sounds like something Kevin Jarrett would be doing in New Jersey is uh, having his makerspace, you know, be, be like a co-working area. Um, certainly there'd be liability concerns and all kinds of other issues. But when we talk about schools and this idea of expanding the walls of the classroom and serving the community and, and looking at ways that we're reaching different constituents and welcoming families Wow, that that's a that's a pretty cool idea. Certainly, somebody is doing that already. If not, they need to be. Sure, I would hope so. And I just want to give a shout out to the co-working space that I utilized in the six weeks I was in Seattle a few summers ago uh, for my medical stuff. It's Office Nomads, just located um, uh, uh, in uh, downtown Seattle, and I, it, it was an oasis for me that I could work. And my work during the time I was off from work was more like you know, writing long blog posts and working on, on, on stuff that wasn't directly related to my day job. But it was just an amazing, really wonderful space that I could go and, and work and have wonderful Wi-Fi and not have to worry about my laptop being lifted when I need to go to the bathroom. And um, I, I just can't stress it enough. And I've always thought that, that a school could do something like this for students uh, relatively inexpensively. You're probably looking at spending, uh, you know, some time to hire a staff member to hang out in there to, you know, quote unquote, guard the space, uh, you know, till maybe six, seven, eight o'clock at night. But I think it's a really worthy model. And, and, and you know, going back to the original article, I think Apple is trying to capture some of that mojo. They've never been ever, uh, you know, discouraging of uh, people utilizing uh, their space to, you know, play with tech. And, and of course, that's what we're really all about. Absolutely. All right. Where are we going to go next? Okay. Well, I'm actually going to steal one of your articles, Wes. Um, I want to look at the um, 
um, forget digital natives. Here our kids are actually using the internet. And this is from the TED blog. And I actually read this article last week myself, and I'm glad you threw it in this week's notes. But um, basically, um, Alexandra Samuel, who uh, is a t- labels herself a tech strategist and writer and speaker and, and has some expertise in social media. And the idea is that the, the dated or that the she labels the digital natives narrative as, as dated. Um, and now we need to move on to new ways of seeing kids inside of classrooms. And I'm not sure if we actually have had the, the digital native discussion here on EdTech SR, um, which would be interesting because obviously I, I would imagine both me and Wes have, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Wes and I have, have interesting views about this particular um, important issue. But uh, let's start off with the article, and then we can dig a little bit on Mr. Prinsky's model of uh, digital immigrants, digital natives. So first, Wes, what were your impressions of the article? Well, I think it's it's hugely important for us to address the digital native myth because it's one of those things that just resonates with people and they just nod their head. Actually, it's a lot like learning styles, right? If you'll talk to academicians about learning styles, it's one of these things that a lot of people nod their heads. Oh, yes, I'm I'm a visual learner. But, you know, there's not um, there's really not a body of refereed research that supports that. Yes. And so similarly, the digital natives myth is something that, you know, Prinsky certainly uh, did a lot of keynotes at a lot of technology conferences around the country. And it's actually damaging at several levels because, number one, it sets up a false dichotomy, which says if you're not genetically young, you can't be a digital learner, which is absolutely false. And there's so many different people that show that, you know, being a lifelong learner, um, you know, is, uh, is, is a mindset. And there, there is something probably to the plasticity and the flexibility. And some people are going to be, you know, more, more, more easily learning in a navigational way rather than having a procedural. I think that's a better dichotomy to think about navigational learning versus procedural. But I think that we can learn to be more navigational. And, um, you know, I'm just I'm glad to hear this continuing to be discussed because with a lot of people who are not technical, uh, this is used as an excuse to say, I, you know, I'm not in that generation and therefore, I get a pass, you know, not to not to be a digital learner. So I'm glad to hear this continuing to be discussed because I think it's one of one of these things that's going to be with us for a long time. And it's worth taking out. And especially uh, this this article, uh, I may I may drop this in as well. I mentioned Susan Bearden last week. I got to see her session at the Atlas conference about resources from the U.S. Department of Education, and they have come up with a big change for their recommendations for families of preschoolers, and that is that all screen time is not created equal, right? Consuming together, reading together, making something, that's different than just consuming. So I think these things are definitely worth revisiting because there's a lot of people who, um, you know, may hear this and, and nod their heads, but maybe not think as deeply as they should about these issues. So did this article bring out anything new for you on this it, subject? It, it did. And, and to be clear, I've been railing against Mark Prinsky since he released this, this notion in 2001. I should say that not railing against Mark Prinsky. I've heard him speak a couple of times, and he's a smart guy. And, and I'm pretty sure that, uh, in fact, if Mr. Prinsky, if you'd like to come on and, and, and defend digital native digital immigrant dichotomy, we'd love to have you as a guest, rest assured. But the, the bottom line is, is that I've always thought it was a bankrupt notion to tell – 
professional teachers who are smart, thoughtful professionals, that they are essentially incapable of dealing with technology as much as someone that is, is a relatively novice learner. And so that, I've always approached that with some uh, 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 suspect because I, I've always felt that that dichotomy was both unusual and, and not productive in thinking. But I think that you know, other than the fact that, that there's no research behind it, you know, this, this article has been cited uh, tens of thousands of times. Google Scholar says that Princey's original article in 2001 on digital natives has been cited 17,274 times. So we know that we're talking about a, an often repeated uh, a notion and what I would call the mythology, but there are a couple of really interesting articles, I'm sorry, claims in the article that I think are really important. One of them is that Digital orphans, the idea of, of, of what this article is, is noting of what digital natives really are, have grown up with a great deal of text access, but have had almost no guidance. And I think that is something that I personally is, am extremely concerned about, that I think that in a lot of cases, because uh, some people believe that, that it, uh, as they were an immigrant, or I should say immigrant to technology, that they weren't... Um, able to really guide students appropriately, we gave up many opportunities to step in and be adults um, on behalf of, of, of conversations related to technology and the kids. And when Wes and I talk about all the time that you should be having conversations in your schools about X, Y, and Z, part of the context of that is that we think that a smart adults, whether you understand the technology or not, I think you probably understand more than you think you do, but whether you understand the tech or not, you need to be striking conversations with your students about how technology impacts both your content area and the more broad notion of society. And the fact that we have so many students that uh, seem to be these digital orphans that you know, have all this access and are you know, kind of flailing because of the lack of adult guidance, I think that's a really important and, and probably a good mission to schools to start now to make sure that they're doing their due diligence to help kids understand tech and the way tech, um, you know, has a, 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 a massive impact on students' lives. And then Mar oh, Martin, on, is, Mar Martin is in the chat room and just uh, chimed in with research behind what I think we're talking about just the digital native research, right? Not having much research on that basis. Yes, and in fact, I, I have a citation that I can I can throw in at some point about that in particular. One of the things that I think is, is really critical is that the digital immigrants, digital natives notion has really no research basis to it. And in fact, every time there's been a research review of that, they can't find anything that would suggest the digital uh, natives uh, dichotomy to be true. The other one that I would also say is an interesting comment from that article is that the kids that uh, are super tech savvy, it's because adults have stepped in and mentored them well in that process. And I'm thinking about, you know, the, the Adobe experts that step in and teach, you know, not everything about the Adobe suite, but teach just enough to, to make a kid dangerous, right? In, inside of that, that dichotomy. And suddenly kids are empowered to build and learn more. And I'm not saying the teacher's responsible for everything, but they have an extremely powerful platform for sparking creativity among students. So, you know, I, I think this article does a good job of drawing a more reasonable dichotomy between adults and students in regards to technology, skill, and staff. Agreed. Hey, uh, Jason, is my audio cut out for you? Uh, nope, you sound good.
Okay. Uh, I, I reduced my, uh, it was cutting out a little bit for Peggy, so don't hesitate to interrupt me. I adjusted my bandwidth down a little bit. Uh, my family is now tethering, so they know to go to cell phone tethering when dad's on for his show. So there we awesome. go. Okay. Well, I'd like to take us, if I could, to an article that just blew my mind today. And I actually got this from the, my Geek of the Week podcast that I'm going to share at the end. Um, but this is crazy. This is like, is this real? So everyone, what do you, do you put on your foil hat or whatever when, when you're going to get ready for conspiracy? Is that what we do? Okay. So put it on VDNet, Mar- uh, May the 3rd, 2017. Hundreds of privacy invading apps are using ultrasonic sounds to track you. And this actually um, does reference a, uh, a research article um, by some by some academic researchers found found last year. 234 Android apps included this ability to listen for ultrasonic tones without the user's knowledge. So we've all known about dog whistles and this idea that there's certain things. In fact, I remember there was something about ringtones at one point that, you know, the millennials or the young kids or whatever could could hear things that their teachers couldn't. And so they were taking advantage of that for, you know, like phone calls or, or, or text messages. My daughter's paying attention now because she's like, what is that? Um, but... This is um, a beacon-based, in some places, technology where a billboard or a store could could be emitting these ultrasonic sounds that you can't hear. And if you've installed a game or another app that that listens to this and you've granted privacy uh, access, so you've allowed that app to use the microphone probably at all times, whether you are using the app or not, it's listening, and so then it's able to say, oh, you're in PetSmart, or oh, you're, you know, at the grocery store. And this is also happening on some, they say, commercials or television programs or other websites where an ultrasonic sound is going to be given off, and then your phone knows it, and so uh, it's, a, it's another way of, of tracking. So um, they, you know, researchers call the technique a threat to privacy of the user. You know, they're enabling unnoticeably tracking locations and behaviors. Um, uh, they can precisely link the watching of even sensitive content, political documentaries, adult movies to a single individual, even at varying locations. Um, so one of the things that this, well, we definitely need to be aware of privacy, but just the, the proliferation of malware of any kind I think every one of us as a home user and then also at school, maybe I mentioned this in the show last week, we need to be able to readily wipe our devices, put in a pristine, clean version of whatever operating system, and then start over. And it's actually also, I'll just wave my Apple flag, you know, this is an Android-only problem right now. That's not something that's been reported on on the Mac platform. So, Jason, does this surprise you or have you been, you know, um, uh, disillusioned enough with, with our talk of surveillance that nothing is going to surprise you now when, when Wes says put on your tinfoil hat? Uh, well, first, it, it tells me that I probably do need to have a tinfoil hat to wear during the show, but I'll work <laughs> on that for future weeks. But the other piece of this is, is that it doesn't surprise me, not because I'm worried about my privacy from a government standpoint. I'm worried about my privacy from a commercial standpoint. And the fact that you mentioned you know, uh, uh, businesses in context of people want to know more about me so they can sell me crap. I mean, I think that's that's the bottom line here. And while I think we need to be concerned, certainly concerned about the government listening and tapping in on things and 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 uh, kind of a Snowdian 
style analysis of things, right? Like, I, I don't think that's inappropriate or even um, even outside the, the, the realm of, of, of possible. But, you know, the bottom line is what's going to drive these technologies is commercial application. So I'm not surprised because I think that um, I think companies are ruthless and they want to sell us stuff. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised at all. And, you know, and uh, you do mention, and I'll, I'll, I'll say you are correct about this. Mar- I almost call, called you Martin. Sorry, uh, Wes and, and Martin for that matter. But um, the bottom line is, is that, um, you know, it, the Android platform does allow the freedom to do that kind of stuff where Apple would probably cut them off at the pass and, you know, uh, a call out uh, app uh, makers and manufacturers that are using the devices in a way that, that freaks people out. If you need any evidence of that, witness uh, the New York Times uh, expose on, on Uber's CEO a few weeks ago that said that when Tim Cook found out that Uber was using some pretty sneaky stuff that was off the books in regards to their iOS app um, that was tracking even after you deleted the application, Tim Cook called the CEO of Uber into his office. Imagine getting a call to say that Tim Cook needs to see you immediately. And you get a sense then of, you know, how seriously I think they take, you know, don't mess with their app architecture. And I think that's a, a interesting phenomenon. So, no, I'm not surprised by that, 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 that development at all. That's a great story about Tim Cook. Wow, I'd not, I hadn't heard that. So um, I think we need to be concerned about it. And again, it goes back to the fact that, you know, at some point I would think this discussion has to come to a head, like some sort of, you know, in the same way that the airlines are, are now facing increased scrutiny due to the situation regarding the doctor passenger that refused to get off the airline and was, you know, uh, ultimately uh, dragged off violently from an airplane. And now we hear stories ev- every single day about X, Y, and Z airline mistreating passengers, I think that's going to lead to better customer service from airlines. At some point, there's going to be a critical mass of these stories of people, you know, that that probably should have known but didn't, um, that, that, you know, their privacy was being violated in a way perhaps to build commercial value, and enough of those stories happen that creates a critical mass to where we start fighting back as organized consumers. Absolutely. Peggy has shared a link. Uh, I just retweeted it and she put it into our chat for, uh, this is Kim Commando, my, my mother's personal, uh, tech Yoda that she listens to on the radio all the time and, and reads her newsletter. Um, the article is, and I'll put this into the, the notes, have one of these smartphones. Your bank details, passwords, and photos could be stolen from May the 10th, 2017. And reminders that, you know, Android users, especially those that might root their device, not be using the app store, um, you know, are at risk. And uh, it's I don't know. Are, are, you, are you guys is there is there does any of the security stuff affect what you do with your students? I've, and, and have you guys been impacted at all? With security, and maybe that's maybe you, can, you don't even want to answer that because that may be too close to home. But let's just be more general in far as Montana with other tech directors. Are you are you seeing these kinds of security issues affecting you know what tech directors in Montana are doing, or you know what's happening in in schools, or is this is this something that's still sort of out in homes, and we know it's happening with identity theft, but it really hasn't impacted us at, at school much. Um, I, there have been a number of, of, of instances that have been reported on in the Montana media where privacy was an issue due to user error. And, of course, last week's 
Google um, Docs, uh, I, I guess, uh, malware explosion did impact a number of schools in, in the state of Montana, like they did everywhere across the United States. Because of how but that didn't actually do anything, did it? I mean, wasn't it just like it spread, but it didn't really deliver a payload? From my understanding, yes, it was self-replicating, but that that really was the extent of of the risk of the the um, the the malware. But you know, I have heard some instances where you know some things have dug in. Um, I'm I, I haven't heard of any open instances of this, but I'm pretty sure that ransomware, the concept of a piece of malware installing itself and demanding X amount of money to get access back to critical fires, probably impacted the district. I know it has hospitals across the United States have been impacted by that and a couple of banks too. But you know, the bottom line is, is that we are in a new era of malware and, and, and unsavory characters that are looking to hack your data for profit. And so, you know, uh, uh, user beware. And think about ethics and how you're going to tie that into your STEM curriculum and your computer science curriculum. You know, we were meeting today and we'll meet again tomorrow uh, talking computer science and some of the, the hardware and software things we're going to do for new courses. Uh, we've said this before on the show, uh, STEM ethics, you know, bringing in these articles, case studies, things like that. Uh, we want we, and need our coders to be ethical coders and, and white hats. So yep. that's that's a layer layer there as well. All right. Awesome. Want to take it somewhere else? Yeah, sure. Let's uh, go to delaying very briefly. Um, let's talk about let's let's talk about IoT and, and fancy fancy routers. I think both those stories are are the same. Um, let's start off with uh, I'm sure what is probably an obvious uh, uh, article. Uh, May 9th CNET article talks about how Amazon Echo is still the dominant um, home assistant. Um, over others like Microsoft and, and Google. What's interesting about Microsoft is that I, I think they're working on a, a standalone um, Cortana assistant, but Google, of course, has the Google Home. And it's something that I will say that, that you know, I wouldn't say it's changed our lives, but my wife and I, between the two of us, use it every single day. And um, we're starting to slowly and surely put on smart plugs around our house. We're up to four now. We can turn on and off uh, various devices using either our voice or applications on our phones. And the reason why we like using those is because you can set an automatic off time. So for example, if I turn on my entertainment center and I decide not to turn those off after I'm done or I only turn off the screen, after three hours, my entertainment center powers itself down as to save energy. And there's something I wanted to do. In fact, I'm going to borrow, I don't know if Martin's still in our, our chat room or not. He's got one of those kilowatts, the little thing you plug in that measures the amount of power that's being sucked up uh, with a, a device, a pass-through power device. I kind of want to see what one of the smart plugs utilizes all by itself because it does stay powered up to be stay connected to the Wi-Fi. But our house... Uh, to, with my wife's blessing, I might add, which is very important, our house is turning into a smart house as we are putting a more and more and more stuff, um, uh, you know, on those networks. But of course, and I see Wes grimacing. Um, the bottom line is, is we put some trust in the two or three vendors that we utilize in order to put those things together. 
Yeah, keeping in mind, yeah, for for security. My wife and I on Sunday went to see four different open houses in our area because that's a thing she loves to do. We're not in the market. It's always interesting to see. And one of the realtors talked about the smart home features and, oh, and anyway, I was just kind of grimacing because I was like, and are you going to say the word security at all? And it was just like, and it's just going to be so wonderful when we have all these things that are connected. And maybe that's going to add some convenience to your life, but yeah. I don't know. I don't want to just make this the security show. I probably sound like a broken record and I'm going to get kicked off the show for saying security, security too much. But I'm glad to hear that you've got faith. And are you investing in Google? I would guess specific IOT devices. Yes. Um, all of our IOT devices, but one plug right into the Google home. And um, I will say, and it looks like Apple's dealing with this now. And the other article that I think you posted for this week, Wes, is that um, the good people at Apple Insider are reporting that Apple's finalizing their design of their uh, uh, Echo rival that's based on Siri. And, and I think it's really smart for Apple to go in that direction. Um, I, I think that at one point that philosophically they were more about IoT device, or I'm sorry, the phone being your IoT device, right? You talk to Siri via your phone, and your phone is is always with you theoretically, and so you're going to then smartly put Siri in the place where with the device to carry with you. But I think that Amazon has proven um, quite uh, quite definitively that that the um, uh, the Echo uh, can be the device that you talk to whether it's your phone or not. And so I think that the idea of a standalone device is really important to um, the future of these intelligent personal assistants in the home. Two items from the chat room. Uh, Peggy pointed out that the article, the Kim Commando article, um, is not talking about malware that installs on Android. It's actually a built-in vulnerability, which they estimate up to 45% of Android users worldwide are affected by this now. And so that's why she's saying, does your phone have it? And it's another reason to be updating your device. You know, that's a good thing. Apple gets these high percentages of folks that tend to get to the latest, you know, operating system pretty quick. And uh, anyway, yeah, check check your Android phone because you may not have downloaded malware, but yep. you just may you not, you know, you may need to update your system. And then Ben Wilkoff uh, has just put in an announcement of talking about Internet of Things and, and uh, home assistance. The, the Echo Show. Um, this will be released on June 28th. Echo Show brings you everything you love about Alexa, and now she can show you things. Watch video flash briefings in YouTube, see music lyrics, security cameras, photos, weather forecasts, to do shopping lists, and more, all hands-free. Just ask. Actually, doesn't this sound a little bit like my smartphone? Um, sounds like since, yeah, Amazon had a, had a poor experience with phones. Um, interesting that they're, they're, uh, wanting to put another screen in your home and then be able to have some control over the content that is streamed there. Wow. And the other thing I would say about that, uh, the reason why I had, I had known about that, the new uh, echo show was that a lot of tech blogs make fun of that, that there, there didn't seem to be a real reason to have a video screen echo um, other than the video con- uh, conference concept. And then I've seen some people that are not, you know, like, you know, uh, uh, A-level tech blockers that have said that they wouldn't mind an extra screen in the kitchen, for example, to watch videos and things. So I think there's probably more more, more market there than maybe uh, meets the eye, but certainly an interesting concept. And, you know, um, Amazon's unafraid to put out things in the market that may fail. Remember, witness the, um, the Kindle phone or, or Echo phone or whatever they're calling the Amazon phone. 
Um, the, the Kindle phone was a flop by every every stretch of the imagination. Even though it had some interesting and, and, and unique features to it, it died. So Amazon might be putting out something that's eventually not, not going to matter. In this series of articles, you mentioned fancy routers, and we've got those uh, in number seven of the show notes now. Uh, Wired Magazine, April 13th, your home's next must-have accessory is a ridiculously fancy router. And then an article called The State of Security in the Connected Home by Luma, who is a manufacturer of one of these smart routers like the Google uh, router that, that Jason has. And that was on their Medium blog from back in November of 2016. I did quite a bit of reading, uh, I think, last week about this. I was just actually telling our son the way we have our Wi-Fi set up is we've got the the uh, air capsule, you know, Apple router, whatever, time capsule thing, uh, the fast one. And um, we've got another one upstairs that is an extender. But based on the reading, uh, that actually can slow down the speed for people connected to that secondary extender, maybe half as fast. Um, because it could be just using one radio to both, you know, send and receive. So what these fancy routers do is set up a mesh network. I think Jason's talked about this before. It yeah. intelligently configures itself so that it is going to allow faster internet. Some of the reviews I read were, were saying that the Luma, uh, you know, was quite a bit faster even than what Google has. I think it's about 400 bucks though for three of these things. Uh, so we're not, we don't have that cash just laying around. So we're not ordering that, you know, currently. But um, the idea of an app and being able to have some, you know, quality of service prioritization. Hey, it's time for the video conference. It's time for, you know, whatever. We're all going to watch a show in the in the living room. Um, being able to do that on an app, um, limited utility for us, like being able to cut off Wi-Fi. Not as big a deal with our teenagers because they have our phones. Like I said, they're tethering now when we're on the show. But um, do you still feel good about your your Google router purchase? And are you yes. telling other people about that, Jason? I am, and I'm hoping they'll go down in price at some point. I'm actually using an older Google router as my second node in the house, and it's a little wonky. And so what I'm hoping happens is that the price goes down in the Google Wi-Fi because I'd like to pick up a second, maybe a third. I have a very long house. Um, uh, that uh, it is a struggle to get uh, a strong Wi-Fi signal from my um, uh, my router is about a third of the way on one side of the house and getting all the way to the other side of the house has been somewhat difficult with a couple routers that I've utilized. And in fact, one of the things I've struggled with is I've had have had a, a few other, in some cases, industrial routers that, that weren't able to make the distance. So, yeah, it's a great platform. And I know a lot of people that criticize it because it doesn't give you a lot of access to some of the more nuanced features. Um, it's got very basic quality of service things. You have to use a mobile app to manage it. But so far, I haven't found that to be any real limitation. Martin is asking, I, I said fast time capsule. And so the clarification there is that was just a relative term. I found this at a pawn shop not far from our house probably about seven years ago. This is an old Apple router, but it um, and it was great, you know, configuration, everything. But it didn't support the newer standards. Uh, I think 802.11n. Um, I, I think this one may have done A. We noticed a big difference when we hooked up a newer time capsule, you know, uh, router. But um uh, anyway, it's, th this is also the effect of uh, just wanting a little bit more detail and control over what's happening, you know, relative to school. Um, yeah. You know, we, we 
I don't know. I know the total bill is, I should, you know, it's thousands of dollars in the realm of, I think, $6,000 paid over a three-year term for our new firewall. Uh, we went with smooth wall for the new firewall and, you know, great features, great functionality. So it's um, not only is it handy, but it's also important from a security standpoint. And I guess that's one more thing I'll say. The article in Luma came in November after we had the Mirai botnet attacks, which was the largest denial of service attacks that happened uh, on the internet to date. And a lot of those were done because of this Mirai script that people could download and then, you know, allow people's webcams or refrigerators or smart TVs or other kinds of things in their home to become part of an attack. And so, Huh. part of the world we, we live in is we buy things like routers like we would an appliance and we just kind of set it on the shelf and may use it for years and years and never touch it and do anything with it. But actually it's an important piece of the computing landscape and needs to be updated and to have vulnerabilities and things like that patched as well. So these smarter routers are designed to do that, to automatically have patches apply. I don't know that that is going to broadly change the market and the security landscape for you know, Internet of Things, but, you know, you can help your house be more secure by having a router that's going to auto-update. So that's another positive thing. Absolutely. Okay, uh, let's see, where else should we go tonight? I, I definitely want to mention, uh, again, I'm coming the security guy. Um, there's a great article about um, new password guidelines. This is VentureBeat yes. on April the 18th, 2017, uh, new password guidelines say everything we thought about passwords is wrong. And what it's uh, citing is a very good source, NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology. And so there's three main changes that they have proposed. Um, number one, no more periodic password changes. That's been a huge thing. In fact, we're even looking, we were looking at it for school as far as when, when do we want to, you know, force password changes. And that's even been part of audits for, for security teams that would come to your school or organization to say, you know, what's your password policy? Um, so they're saying that there's, there's actually research now showing that periodic changes don't improve password security. They can actually make it worse. And so they've got some proof in this document. Second of all, no more imposed password complexity uh, requiring combinations of letters and numbers. <coughs> and so um, that, that actually gives you a false sense of security that says, uh, users can be less creative. And then it says that the mandatory va mandatory validation of newly created passwords, um, I guess that that's going to, that, that, I guess that that's going to be a part of it. Maybe, I don't understand this one. I think it's saying that the, that the commonly, uh, used like password, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, that can easily guess those, those things are going to be, um, in password systems, you know, just rejected immediately. They're not even going to allow them. So it talks about password fatigue and multi-factor or two-factor authentication. Um, so definitely worth taking a look at, and that could actually change some of the things that you might do at your school with security. And um, I'm going to look into this further myself because this is something that we've literally been been looking at what our policy is and how often we're doing these things and. You guys, what what is your password policy at the Montana Virtual Academy, Jason? Um, we we have a fairly um, a fairly light policy in regards to that. That's enforced through our Google dashboard, and um, we don't force changes to passwords. But I, I think that something that's becoming increasingly obvious to me is that until we can more universally deal with biometrics, then I think that we're going to be 
Passwords have become an increasing problem. And in fact, the, that the article that you cite tonight, Wes mentions, and I've seen a couple other references to this as well, is that old clever passwords like, you know, um, Mississippi 88 uh, left bracket, right, which would have been a safe password three or four years ago, is not anymore. And um, that's sad, but I think the password is what's what's really becoming challenging here as opposed to finding new ways to outsmart a logarithms that are, are trying to hack passwords. So at some point, I'm assuming in the relatively near future, we're going to have to figure out a way to do biometrics. Yep. You mind if I mention one more before? Please do. Okay, uh, this is uh, Minecraft Education. This is pretty exciting. This is from May 2nd, and this was from The Verge. Minecraft Education Edition is getting a code builder tool to help teach coding skills. Um, a, a, addition or correction from last week, um, we had mentioned that Microsoft was giving a free year of Minecraft Education Edition to folks, but you do have to buy the new Windows S version. And I think for each license of Windows S that you get, you're able to have this free, I think, year license because the pricing of all this you know, changed a lot when it, from when it was Minecraft EDU. Um, but um, this, is, this is pretty exciting. We have our, our middle school computer teacher using something called Minecraft EDU Turtles. And actually our daughter, seventh grade daughter, really enjoyed doing this where you're uh, writing code that makes the turtle, you know, do different things, whether that's that's mine or she made one, I think, that uh, creates a tree. But it allows uh, students to learn coding and computational thinking within Minecraft. And so I'm, in, I'm interested to check that out further. I don't know whether that will push us over the edge to say, yes, we'll sign up for this, you know, just like, Adobe and everybody else who wants to have cloud-based software and, and have you license it and pay every year versus you own it, you know, forever. But um, the video is definitely worth watching, and it's called Introducing Code Builder for Minecraft Education Edition. Um, few things are as motivating to some students as Minecraft is and the opportunity to build and create, and it's definitely a wonderful open-ended sandbox environment for all kinds of curricular connections, so... Absolutely. And um, well, this is posted his password, by the way, in the in the chat. So if anybody would like to hack him, he's got it in there. Hard posted his password. <laughs> uh, I don't think it's it's not real. <laughs> oh, Mississippi eighty eight bracket. Good, good. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I was like that that guy that ran the uh, uh, the credit report monitor service a couple of years ago that kept posting his social security number until someone actually got in and opened a bunch of accounts under social security number. So um, that's, uh, yeah, be careful what you wish for, Dr. Horaji. So uh, let me take another quick look here to see if there's anything else we need to cover tonight. And if not, we can get to the geeks of the week. Um, interesting stuff. Yeah, let's do the fake news one from Google for a moment. Um, we had this one last week, and, and I don't think it'll hold a, another week. So Slash Gear reports on April 25th, 2017, that Google is working on a uh, an interface for users to report fake news to Google. And um, the interface is interesting in that um, um, they are basically allowing users to give feedback to Google about articles that they think are, for whatever reason, not legitimate search results. And you can actually click on um, a dialogue screen next to um, search results, and it asks you, what do you think? This is helpful. I don't like this. This is hateful, racist, or offensive. This is vulgar or sexually explicit. This is harmful, dangerous, or violent. This is misleading or accurate. Comments or suggestions. And then you, you can uh, send that 
to Mother Google for consideration. And obviously, um, this is an important part, I think, of the search engine mm -hmm. phenomenon that um, people with nefarious goals will oftentimes put in you know, well-crafted search engine optimization to put things that are less than factual at the top search results. But it also goes back to that in some cases, offensive is in the, the eye of the beholder. Racist is in the eye of the beholder. Um, sexist is in the eye of the beholder. And while I, I personally think that, that um, you know, that there probably is a lot of sexist, racist, classist uh, a rhetoric that that uh, uh, passes off as news in the fake news era you know it's interesting that you know how much do you want to bring in you know the 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 majority of opinions to help guide whether it belongs in a search engine so i guess i'd start with this wes good step bad step or useful or not useful i'm very happy to see google stepping up to try to creatively address these issues just like you know it was disappointing to see facebook initially say what we're not a media company we don't have responsibility for this i mean uh i don't know that we want to totally get into the james comey firing of yesterday but boy has has cybersecurity issues of you know hacking fake news, all of this been just totally catapulted front and center in the mainstream media. And so while we all need the good crap detector that, um, you know, Neil Postman talked and wrote, wrote about years yeah. ago before the, the internet and, and when TV, we were still mostly worried about kids watching too many hours of TV, you know, per day versus other kinds of screen time. I'm glad to see Google doing this. Uh, again, we need our, our coders to be creatively applying their, their skills and knowledge, not just to figure out how to better market to us and, and, and how to increase profits, but also how to, how to make just the world a better place. And I, I have drank the Google Kool-Aid and I tend to think they, they don't want to be evil. So I'm glad to see Google doing this, but like you, I'm also, um, you know, interested to see how this kind of crowdsourcing is going to, how effective it's going to be. You, you, I think talked with, with Martin a few weeks ago, maybe it was, you know, it was two, yeah, two weeks ago or whatever about just comments and trolls on the local paper, right. And how they're, they have not been able to successfully find a way to address that. So they just, you know, stop the comments. Um, I'm glad to see them trying to creatively address this and maybe AI is going to play a role in this too, right? Um, we've probably had articles on here about how <laughs> when machine learning turns its attention to people, you know, it learns bias. It learns right. sometimes how to cuss, how to, how to do different things right. that are, that are unpleasant. So do you think this is a, is a good and positive step? I do think it's a good and positive step. And, you know, I, I, I think Google needs to be careful. I hope they put together a set of rules on maybe minimizing things based on crowdsourcing that they, they can share. I realize that, that, they won't, nor should they give away their logarithm because that's the magic sauce that makes the Google search work. But, you know, it it it, it is, uh, you know, I, I would say that no matter what your political beliefs are, there's 30 or 40 percent of people in the United States who think that your political beliefs are not just wrong, they're offensive. And I don't care if you're liberal or conservative. The bottom line is a good percentage of people think that you are out to lunch when it comes to your political views. And so, you know, we need to be careful in a pluralistic democracy in, in how we create those tools in order to, you know, create a sense of debate and balance in the way we approach issues in the United States. Absolutely. Well... You wanna, do you wanna, uh, why don't we do one little, uh, B-roll off, off the tech topic, uh, fact or story and then, and then Geeks of the Week. So this, this can be a, 
you, you probably need to share with us another nugget of, of Icelandic uh, trivia or, you know, some, some kind of culinary story from your, uh, your recent expeditions to France. Um, I, uh, I guess I should go first since I just threw this on you. Um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a quick little thing about Oklahoma. So, uh, people like Marvel, why would you live in tornado? So look, because look at this, we're, we're in the center there and those red things at the bottom are actually tornado warnings, but we were just talking with friends in Florida. I would much rather live in tornado country than hurricane country. I mean, I do not want to live on the coast of Florida, but May is historically the, uh, the month of the most tornadoes. And, um, you know, we're, we're thankful to have great warning systems and great tracking and, you know, and also apps like this, is this, here's, here it is. This isn't a geek of the week, but the app storms, uh, this is great. We, when we were in California, we talked and they said that doesn't help us because there's really not lots of tracking out in the Pacific ocean to tell us, you know, what's going to come hit us from the West, but we don't have that problem in Oklahoma. So anyway, do you have any, a side of technology nugget to give us tonight. Sure. Um, hot water in Iceland, the stuff that comes through the pipes is comes from the ground. So when you, you know, you don't have to have a water heater in Iceland because um, you unscrew the, the hot tap in the tub and sulfury, stinky hot water comes right out of the tap and uh, you can fill your bathtub full of super hot, Icelandic sulfuric water from the ground. And in fact, one of the things that when uh, my wife and I visited Iceland a couple years ago with a good friend of mine from college um, was that she would like to take baths in the sticky sulfury um, water that came right out of the tap. Uh, and there is a, uh, a spa basically in, in every neighborhood um, full of, of hot tubs and, um, um, and I can't think of the word that I'm picking up right Sauna? now. S- uh, saunas and, um, you know, uh, when hot water comes from the oh, ground. Oh, geyser, geysers, geysers. Uh, geysers is, is also it. Uh, why can't Hot pools, uh, springs, hot hot springs. Uh, uh, hot springs. There we go. There's hot springs. <laughs> hey, look at that. See, right. ladies and gentlemen, if you are listening to the audio, you, you didn't um, benefit from the Pictionary high-quality visual. <laughs> Basically. Back and forth, right? Yeah, it's like it's coming down to the ground. But uh, it's one of the things we love about Iceland, and something that we really want to do is we went we went in August. Uh, in in I think it was August 2013 is when we went to Iceland, and um, you know it was it was cooler there than Montana. It was actually historically hot weather in in Montana in August 2013. So we were very excited that we left um, uh, Helena, Montana, when it was 109 degrees, and we got off the plane in Reykjavik, Iceland, and it was 61 degrees. We were thrilled that it was that cool outside. But we really want to go in the wintertime sometime when it's dark and cold and apparently uh, folks in Iceland like both hot coffee and also uh, a stiff drink. Uh, during the winter time, and so uh, hanging out in the neighborhood um, uh, 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 hot springs, and uh, then having either a nice hot cup of coffee or perhaps a hot drink that has. A- we love Iceland. I think Iceland's been uh, maybe one of my favorite trips. Awesome, awesome. All right, I go first for geeks. You want me to? Uh, I can go first. Um, I want to share with you tonight, uh, hands down, my favorite uh, a tech bag. Um, I get asked this a lot. Um, I carry around uh, one of the 511 tactical bags, and I own three now. 
um, that these are bags that are really not intended for geeks. They're intended for people that like to carry around concealed weapons. Um, but 511 Tactical is a manufacturer of uh, tactical equipment intended for uh, outdoors people, military folks, police. Um, but a couple of years ago, after a ton of research, um, I bought a 511 Tactical bag it was, uh, 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 it, was, it was the Rush 24 backpack. And what I liked about it, and I, you know, I, I, uh, a bag is very important to me. When I travel, my bag is my office. So I need to be able to carry my laptop and equipment I need to be able to be productive anywhere around the world in that bag. And since that time period, I've, I've purchased two others. Um, I have a um, what's called a Rush 12 bag that actually I bought off of, of, of Martin Horatio, who I think might still be in the chat. When I say I bought it, I, 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 I seized it from him. I've not actually paid him any cash for that bag yet. So I'm sure he'll remind me that sometime soon. Um, and then I recently picked up the Rush 12 bag, which is the bag I'm going to carry uh, daily uh, to Europe with me. It's not going to be my backpack because I think I'm going to buy a 511 tactical uh, rolling duffel bag to be my permanent bag. But these bags can go through shocking amounts of damage and, and don't seem to take any damage at all on them. They're machine washable. They have the Molly system on the outside, which is the webbing. You can add things to. I like just to stick pens and occasionally uh, uh, maybe a headphone or something on there. But if you're looking for a nice quality bag, I put two links in, in the notes today. And by the way, you can get all the the links to the articles of everything we talk about at TechSR and our website, edtechsr.com, where we post uh, uh, our link document that we use to communicate back and forth. You can often some team links that we didn't have time to go through, but a link to the 501 Tactical store and then also the eBay, I'm sorry, the Amazon.com store. 501 Tactical, really, really high quality bags that I think are great for nerds. Awesome. Well, my Geek of the Week is another podcast, but it's actually one that I found today thanks to Mastodon and um, my uh, digital friend, Doug Belshaw. So the, the uh, podcast is called The Tide Podcast, and it is a actually kind of similar to us. It's Today in Digital Education is what TIDE stands for. Uh, but their last episode from May 10th is called Surveillance, Hacking, and Democracy. And some of the articles actually from tonight I uh, heard them talk about. Um, but this is a, a duo podcast similar to ours by Doug Belshaw and Di Barnes. And so Di is from, I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this right, um, Owundle, UK. So he's, he's from Britain. And then Doug is, uh, also from England, from, from Morpeth, England. So anyway, check, check that out. And it, it is wild and crazy that we live in this world where we can be on a social platform like I was on Mastodon, which is a non-commercial open source federated social media platform, very similar to Twitter, but anybody can set up their own platform. Um, you know, found, found Doug, you know, I of course follow educators and want to, want to learn from, from educators. He's doing a whole month of no Twitter, only Mastodon. And then he happened to mention his podcast. And then, you know, today as I'm, I'm on my drive, you know, to and from school and, and other places end up listening to their podcast a lot. So we want to give a shout out to anyone who listens to the podcast and the show to let us know. And if there's anything you'd like to hear us address, we had a request tonight in the chat room from Ben to possibly do a, an Amazon echo, um, you know, assist a home assistant show. Uh, Jason talked about a digital native show. We'll have to take, take those under advisement. If you've got anybody you want to suggest as a guest, 
We're certainly open to those possibilities as well. Sometimes we've been known for people simply in our chat room to jump right into our shows and join in the conversation. So we, we've been known to do that. So Jason, where can, well, people, I'll, I'll say where people can find me online at uh, speedofcreativity.org. I am W Fryer on Twitter, if you want to find me on Macedon, you can find that direct link on about.me slash wfryer. But I'm on the Macedon instance, mastodon.cloud, and I am wfryer there. Okay, and I think I, it's time for me to get on Macedon before it's too late for me to be a cool kid there. So uh, my name is Jason Neifer. I'm the assistant director and curriculum director of the Montana Digital Academy. Um, I'm on Twitter at techsavvyteach, where I post... Um, stuff that I'm thinking about, reading about all the time. Um, I post a lot of links there, and I'm more than happy to engage in conversation. Again, Tech Savvy Teacher on Twitter. And I blog uh, fairly regularly at the NCC Tech Savvy Teacher blog at blog.ncc.org. This is the EdTech SR podcast. We are here live every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock Pacific. 9 o'clock Eastern Time. I'm sorry, 10 o'clock Eastern Time, because we are hardcore on the East Coast. And uh, we love if you come and join the chat room. Or if you're interested in being a guest on, on Tech SR, come in the chat room, chat with uh, our regulars uh, there. Um, uh, Peggy George oftentimes uh, joins us there. Martin Horaci, uh, Ben Wilkoff uh, is a regular in chat room as well. Jump in the chat room and we'd love to have you as guest sometime on Tech SR. So uh, have a great week. We will see you next week where we will go through the educational technology news and talk to you about how current events in tech impacts you and your school. Look for, new, look for new hats coming next week. <laughs>